Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again. We are continuing in our series of studies in the letter of 1 John. And as you know, if you've been listening to this series so far, you know, uh, John is in this place where he is He's living into this, this incredibly different world than where his life started out. And he's calling us to follow him into a life with Jesus in which we take more and more of Jesus into ourselves and it transforms our own worlds. So as John describes life, he's dealing with a, a dramatic sense of loss and then victory. Because remember, look at, look at the story of John's biography again, this disciple of Jesus. As a young man, he left common life to follow Jesus. He left the profession of his father. He left marriage and, and normal society to follow Jesus. And then he lost Jesus on the cross, though Jesus would be resurrected. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And again, John experiences some, some sense of loss. He then loses his Jewish community because in following this new Messiah, the first uh, Orthodox Jewish people would reject Christianity as a heresy. He would then go on to, to lose Jerusalem when Rome destroyed it. And as he went about ministry, one after another, he would lose his friends to martyrdom. John's whole life was struck with different kinds of losses. And so when, when John describes the Christian life, he talks about kind of a, a cosmic victory in which God takes care of the things that matter, even in a, a fragile world in a world filled with change. And as we look at today's text, as we continue on in our, our series of readings, we'll see that today John is focusing in on the victory that he has and that we can have when we trust in Jesus. And so that's where we're going to pick up today. So if you've got a Bible, you're going to want to open up to the First uh, John chapter 2 at verse 12. This is right where we left off last week, and we're going to pick up here again. So if you've got a Bible, follow along and listen to God's Word. John writes, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of Jesus' name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. This was a, a big point at the beginning of this letter, right? That in the beginning was the foundation of everything, the reason everything came to be, the logos. And that logos has now become a human being and walked among us. The creator of the universe has walked among us as a human being. You know he who has been in existence since the beginning of the world. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Sometimes this is translated evil, you've overcome evil, but it, but it can be translated the evil one and the Bible affirms both as true. There really is evil and there really is personified evil in a, a, a character named Satan and, and demonic spirits. And now he re repeats, this is sort of a poetic a cosmic victory that he's declaring. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is, this is John's sort of poetic celebration of the fact that in Jesus he now has victory over life. 
and he he burst into poetry and has this repetitive style of, uh, I write to you fathers, I write to you sons, I write to you children, I write to you fathers, I write to you sons, I write to you children. And he, he wants to say, look at what we're celebrating. The God who created the universe in the very beginning has walked among us. He's forgiven our sins by dying on the cross for us. And now we have life in him and we'll go on to have eternal life. Cue the hallelujah chorus. So this, this poem uh, emerges in the middle of John's letter. This, this song emerges in the middle of John's letter. And, and now as we continue reading, you and I get to make a little interpretive move about this letter because the, the numbers that are in your Bible, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers that are scattered through it, those were not in the original text. Those were added a thousand years after Jesus walked the earth. So you can ignore all those and determine for, for yourself <coughs> where you think the natural breaks in the text go. The, the section titles that you'll see in there were not in the original text. So those, those breaks that are created by an editor are not necessarily in a place where they need to be. So you and I get to make an interpretive move and decide when does John sort of let go of one thought and move on to the next thought. And this, this, this poem or song that we just read, I think, is necessarily tied to the next part. And, and so I read these two together on purpose because I think that celebration of victory leads into the part that comes next in verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the, the Greek word here for pride, I really like. It's Allah zoe. Allah means beneath and zoe means life. And so the pride of life is literally the, the sub-life of life, the stuff that's, that's lesser than life, the stuff that's not valuable enough to count in life. Uh, uh, the love of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the sub-life, the stuff that's not good enough to be important in life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Okay, so John is now painting a, a picture for us. He's created a sort of an experiment of what happens if we take Jesus into ourselves and we live in him and his light is in us and we walk in his light. We are transformed in our experience of the world. And then the church becomes this community in which God's love is manifest. It's like this giant social science experiment. What would it be like if we had a community that was so committed to loving one another the way that Jesus loved us? It would transform the world. And, and John has laid out that picture for us in the first chapter. And now in the middle of the second chapter, he just explodes in celebration. He's so thankful because when we live for Jesus, when we live for his kingdom, we have overcome the evil one. And I think secondarily connected to it, we have overcome the world. Now, this is important because there's a confusion that emerges in Christian culture today, and you'll see it, you'll recognize it as I describe it, there's something that Christians are confused about all the time concerning this talk about not loving the world. Christians read the Bible and, and there, there are voices in here like John's that make it sound like you shouldn't enjoy anything in life. 
John says, don't, don't love the world. Don't, don't follow the, the lust of the flesh or, or the lust of the eyes or the, the pride of life, the sub-life of life. Don't chase after those things. The apostle Paul will say exactly the same kinds of things. Paul will always contrast life in the spirit with life in the flesh. Right? When, when John says the, the lust of the flesh, it's the same language that Paul uses. Don't chase after the, the things of the flesh. At, at certain points in history, it's made Christians act like our physical bodies are bad. Our bodies that God has designed. But, but at certain points, Christians have gotten confused on this and think the body is bad, or desire is bad, or enjoyment of life is bad. Uh, Jesus will even say, in this life, don't invest in things that moths can eat and rust can destroy, but instead invest in the kingdom of heaven. And it leaves people with a sense that, well, maybe enjoying the world, enjoying life is a bad thing. We even, we even talk about that in sort of silly ways. I remember going to a restaurant one time and this waiter came out with a plate of desserts and one of the desserts with this beautiful chocolate cake on there, and he's holding out this plate of desserts. And I said, what's the, what's the chocolate one? And he said, oh, that one, that one is called sinfully chocolate. We take our secret recipe of decadent chocolate and we fill it with molten lavas of goodness. And it lies on a bed of silky cream and soft cake. And it will be better than your wildest desires. And I looked at him and I was like, should I want that? And he goes, if you don't try the devil's cake. Right? We, we talk about simple pleasures like they're somehow evil, like they're somehow sinful. And in more serious ways, Christians have done that throughout history. The, the history of Christian talk about sexuality largely involves demonizing a biological process that God designed. Listen, the idea that desire is bad is not Christian. It's actually Buddhist. That's the Buddhist framework of life. The, the Buddhist mindset is the only way to escape suffering is to stop desiring things. To, in fact, lose yourself altogether so you no longer feel desire. That's not the Christian worldview. Because in Christ, our passion doesn't go away. It just changes directions. Our, our sense for pleasure doesn't go away. It just changes directions. It has a different object. Our love does not go away. In fact, in Christ, our love grows, but it grows in different directions than it would have without Christ. This is the, the, the message that John has for us when he tells us not to love the world. In Genesis, God creates the world and calls it good. And then in John's gospel, in one of the most famous verses of the Bible, John 3, 16, John tells us, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. The Bible doesn't teach us to hate all of the experience of life. Instead, when it teaches us not to desire the, the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the, the sub-life of life, it's talking about something more specific than simply pleasure or enjoyment. It's not talking about uh, turning off all desire so as to no longer enjoy anything. Let, let's be clear. When, when John or when the Apostle Paul talk about the flesh, they're talking specifically about self-indulgences that distract us from God's kingdom 
and that make us pay less attention to the love of others than to self-fulfillment. It doesn't tell us to turn off our love. It says, make sure your love is pointed in the right direction. Hate the things in this life that addict you and poison you and rob you of your freedom. Hate the things in this life that are useless and will suck up time and waste a life that could have otherwise been meaningful. We are losing a generation of young men to pot, porn, and video games, and that is a waste of life. Instead, live for things that count. Invest your, your mental real estate, the things that you focus on day to day, not on staring in the mirror, but on staring at your neighbor in need. In not thinking about how do I make my, my life uh, better, but how do I love someone else more? This is what John is after here. John isn't telling us to, to stop caring about life. He's telling us to care more about life, but care about the things that count. In the Gospel of John again, chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus promises us abundant life. Jesus went to a uh, wedding where people had already had too much to drink and they had run out of wine and he turned water into wine at that wedding. He, he's obviously not telling us to cease desiring all things, but to put God's kingdom first. Jesus will say, don't worry about clothes. Don't worry about food. God knows that you need those things. Prioritize God's kingdom and his righteousness and the things that you need will be taken care of by him. Spend less time trying to take care of yourself. Focus on God's kingdom and caring for others, and then let God care for you. And, and that experience of God's miraculous care for you is far more satisfying than running around and trying to spend your life taking care of yourself anyway. Focus on the things that count. Focus on God's kingdom. Focus on loving others. This is the grand social science experiment that Jesus launched with the church. What if we had a community that was so dedicated to love of things that matter and we launched that into the world? What would happen? Well, his vision is that we would transform the world in the way that we loved. And remember, in John's vision, that's not a peripheral, secondary, optional activity. It is an ingredient in the recipe which defines what the final product is. When you mix uh, chocolate chips into chocolate chip cookies, you shape them into what they are to become. If you take the chocolate chips out, they no longer become chocolate chip cookies. And, and in the same way, God's love is not something that's sort of a nice fringe conversation for the especially sentimental. It is at the heart of the ingredient list of what a follower of Jesus is to become. We are designed to be beings of love, and the church is meant to be a community of love. That's our identity. And so as we go about our daily lives, our call is to focus on God's kingdom and on other people more than ourselves. Um, I had a little experience of this a couple of weeks ago, and it's it's a it's a small and, and petty experience, but it's it sort of captures uh, what I think John is after here. Um, I had a little uh, uh, accident. I stopped at a stop sign in my car, and I I started to go forward, and the person behind me started to go forward a little more uh, eagerly than I did, and they bumped into my back bumper, uh, and we got out, and she was very polite and apologetic and whatnot. Um, and, and we looked at it and there was a little tiny fold in the bumper, not, not a big one, just a, a little one, but I could see it. And I made sure the trunk could close and everything. She was very polite. We were, you know, it was a very 
it was a pleasant experience. I said, this was right outside the church. I said, I'm the pastor of this church, which I hope didn't make her feel even more guilty, right? She's, she slammed into a man of God. <laughs> and, uh, um, I said, I said, you know what? If, if the car runs fine, I'm, I'm not going to make your insurance go up. I don't, I don't want to mess with that. And um, I drove around through the day to make sure there was no functional problems with the car. And I sent her a text and I said, uh, hey, you know what? Just don't don't worry about it. I don't want you to have to deal with the insurance anyway. It, you know, a, a car is a tin can that just gets us places. It's it's not worth being concerned about. And she wrote back and she said, oh, I, I really appreciate that. That's you know, She kind of seemed surprised. She said, I really thank you for doing that. And uh, I text ba- texted back, I said, do unto others, right? And she texted back and she said, yeah, and I think I'm, think I'm going to pay this one forward. And so now when I go out and I look at my car, and you wouldn't notice it if you weren't looking for it, but I see this little fold in the bumper and it doesn't bother me, it makes me happy. Uh, because I think about the fact, oh, and I texted her back, nice to bump into you. Uh, <laughs> um And she goes, wow, that guy's really not funny at all. Um, But I I like the fact that there's somebody out there now waiting for an opportunity to pay forward a love that she knows came out of the church. And that was the experiment that Jesus intended the church to be. What if, as we went about our daily lives, we cared more about the kingdom of God and looking for opportunities to share it and loving people in need? more than we care about stuff like our cars. It's kind of a petty example, but this is what John is after. We're not called to turn off our passions. We're called to turn our passions in the right directions. We're not called to turn off pleasure. Again, that's not Christianity, that's Buddhism. We're called to turn our pleasure in the right directions. We're not called to turn off our love. In fact, our love grows, but it grows in new directions and the right directions. Um, I saw a better example of this um, in a, an essay written by uh, C.S. Lewis, the great uh, Christian theologian and writer that many of us have, have read and have known, one of the most prolific writers of the last century. Uh, and in 1939, he was giving a lecture at uh, Oxford University uh, uh, to a bunch of students who were beginning their fall semester. This was in September, right around this time of the year. And he was giving them a lecture about beginning, uh, it, was, it was actually a sermon, a sermon about um, how they ought to approach life here at the beginning of fall. But if you know anything about history, September of 1939, Germany invaded Poland for the second time on September 1st of 1939. So everybody's thinking about that. And it would be another year before Germany began bombing England, but all these English students were aware that that could happen and it was on everyone's mind. And the sermon was entitled, I believe it was entitled, uh, Learning in Wartime. And Lewis asked the provocative question, how on earth could we be studying literature and poetry and even mathematics when there's a war going on? Aren't there more important things for us to be focused on than than studies? How could we we learn in wartime? And uh, he says, you know, truthfully, that situation is true all the time. Because we as believers in God and followers of Jesus know that we're actually in wartime all the time. Every single person you meet is either on a pathway to heaven or to hell, Lewis says. How could you focus on anything else? How could you read literature or poetry or study mathematics when you know that that is the dramatic reality of life? Lewis answers by saying we should absolutely continue our studies in wartime for a couple of reasons. One, you really can't do otherwise. 
you, you can't just give up life. Imagine he says a fireman who is so dedicated to fighting fires that that's all he does. He never rests. If he has a break, he goes and he teaches other people how to fight fires. All he knows how to talk about is fighting fires. He has no other interests. He doesn't listen to music. He doesn't read books. He, he has no time for family or relationships. All he does is fight fires. Lewis says that person's not going to be helpful. That person's going to be miserable. And secondly, more importantly, um, what, what war does to the soul, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make death more common. All of us die anyway, Lewis says. Uh, it doesn't make uh, our a, a chance to know God uh, any less possible. Um, because in fact, if anything, there are more uh, foxhole conversions of people who are facing war. People start to think more seriously about God uh, when, they, when they go to war. He says the, the one thing that changes in the soul because of war is we start to realize that life is finite, that life is limited and life will end. And it's in the realization that life will end that we start to savor the things in life that matter most. And the study of literature and poetry and mathematics, the things that, that are, are most deep, most profound in life, those shouldn't be ignored because there's a war going on. If anything, those should heighten because of our awareness that time is limited. Lewis will say, realizing that there's a, a, a cosmic battle out there shouldn't make us cease to invest in the things that matter most in life. It should make us invest all the more in them. What it should make us do is to cease to love the self-indulgences of the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the sub-life of life. And if we stop focusing on those and actually focus on what counts most because our lives are limited, then we have overcome the evil one. We've learned to live life the way it was designed to be. For God's kingdom and for the love of other people. For things that count and not for frivolous things and things that are passing. Jesus wanted to design this, this social science experiment of a community of love that lived for love, that lived in his love with, with his love uh, in them, that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and go out and live free lives in which they love other people the way that Jesus loved us. And I want to begin a social science experiment here at Real Life Church this week and for the rest of this series in which we experiment with random acts of kindness in which we go out and seek to make loving other people, even people we don't know, an intentional and conscious activity of our day. Not a frivolous secondary side effect, but the thing towards which our passions are turning. That we would spend our time day to day thinking about, who do I get to love next? How do I love creatively? How do I find people to invite into Jesus' love? And so this is going to work a little bit differently for our online audience than our in-person audience. I'll tell you what we're doing in person at the church here on Sunday morning, and then I'll tell you how we're going to do it for those of you who are only online. Here uh, at the church in the lobby, there's a big board, and there are little envelopes all across the board. And I'll invite the congregation to go and take an envelope off the wall and open it up and do whatever is written inside of that envelope. And in all of these envelopes are written different directions for some act of kindness that the person who chooses it are going to go and do this week. They don't get to read them. It's a surprise. They have to pick one and, and do what's in there. 
But then they get to go and uh, care for, for people uh, in Jesus' name. So what I'm going to do for you who are online is I'm going to read you some choices. You actually get to make a choice uh, that the, the, the live audience in, in person will not be able to do. Uh, but you at home can, can look through these. Um, and bear in mind, verse 17, whoever does the will of God lives forever. And this is how we're going to go about doing the, the will of God this week. Think through these things, think through this list, and go and do one or two of these this week. And if you have an important experience in caring for somebody else, send us a note at info at reallife.la or write it in the, the comments under this uh, sermon and tell us about the experience. Number one, buy lunch for somebody in financial uh, need. Number two, take food to the local police station or fire station. Number three, mow a neighbor's lawn or wash their car. Number four, write a letter to someone in prison. Number five, Support a child through Compassion International. You can go to reallife.la forward slash compassion and choose a child to support there. Number six, buy a gift card at the grocery store and then give it to the grocery clerk who ran uh, up your, uh, your groceries and just tell them, uh, God bless you. Write a letter of apology to someone you need to apologize to. Write a thank you card to someone you need to thank. Volunteer at a pantry, ours or another one. Leave a tip that's equal to the bill at a restaurant. Buy lunch for the car behind you at the drive-thru. Buy coffee for the person behind you at the cafe. Offer to pray for someone. Pay attention to someone who is being ignored. Visit someone who is sick or homebound. Take a meal to a family with small children. Donate to a charity. Pray for someone you're in conflict with. And when you do those things, when you get to interact with someone that you're caring for, with whom you're, you're showing this random act of kindness, make sure you tell them, God bless you. If they ask you why you're doing it, you can say, God has been good to me, so I get to be good to others. Give, give words to your actions. It's important that we, as we go about loving the world in Jesus' name, make sure, <coughs> make sure that they understand what it is that motivates us. Because the most important thing we have to share is not, not just common niceties, but a kingdom that has worked at work in our hearts, transforming us into the people that God means for us to be. Transforming our community into the, the revolutionary community on the earth that Jesus meant to design. And transforming the world into a place in which Jesus' name is known. That's my challenge for you this week. Go out and give it a try. Let me know how it goes. And God bless you. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.